Well, maybe it's like Casey says. Fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Doc? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you can look. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy. I'll be there. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, though. Me neither, Mom. Just something I've been thinking about. You're listening to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. From sports to gardening, from good food with close friends, to great music and movies. Provided by your hosts, Justin Ackerman, the millennial, Cody Stoffer, the reluctant Gen Xer, and Craig Morton, the token baby boomer. These guys are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but they will be entirely by accident. Welcome to episode number two. On this episode, we interview Cameron McCown, the owner of Bread of Life Deli in Meridian, Idaho, which is a nonprofit deli and has no prices set for their food. Cameron shares with us his mission and purpose for the deli. And Craig, Cody, and Justin talk in the NHL, stakes, and a little bit more. This episode features music from Band of Horses, Mud Crutch, and Radiohead. Did anybody watch the Stanley Cup? Well... (laughs) Stand the cup. No, come on, man. Who watches hockey? Who you know, watches hockey? Exactly. Okay. To me, hockey hockey is the the uh, the Cinderella of, of sports. <laughs> what do you mean? Because it turns it turns into an ugly thing at midnight or what? Wait, no, Cinderella doesn't turn into <laughs> an ugly thing. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, it's are got the ugly or the evil stepsisters. Uh, football and basketball then, or baseball? Something like that, you know what I mean? And baseball. She's got, poor, poor hockey's got more stepsisters than Cinderella. Oh, boy. <laughs> the problem is the prince is always choosing the other stepsisters, Craig. That's right, exactly. <laughs> Everybody loves the other stuff. So so here, here, for me, hockey is this strange ambivalence. I love ambivalence. I'm feeling ambivalent today. That's the second time I've said that. Um, but hockey has all this uh, precision. I mean, the precision skating, the incredible passes, this tiny little puck, and all this stuff you could never, ever do on grass or on a court, and to make things worse, you're doing it on ice. That's true. And, and, and I, I remember talking to a, a friend of mine who plays hockey, and uh, I said, well, why, do, why, why are there so many fights? They said, because we're on ice. And you can never make things happen the way you want them to happen. And so you play the whole game with this constant sense of frustration. And somebody gets in your way and you just belt them. Craig, I got to say, that is a very deep, that's a very deep and thorough analysis of, uh, I really appreciate that. I truly do. I still hate it, though. 
Well, so, so what, what I really <laughs> liked about that, that, that conversation, it was between two Mennonites and, you know, you know, when you're a pacifist hockey player, it's just really, really hard. <laughs> it's just really, really hard. Oh man! The other thing cool about the Stanley Cup is the cup itself. the The names of all your predecessors who've won the championship are on it, also. That's cool. That and it can be a little cool. bit yeah. humbling, but it also can be kind of cool. Hey, I'm on there with my hero that I grew right. up. Oh, uh, that is true. That's true. That'd be pretty and, awesome. And the cup is kind of yeah. a living cup. They'll right. add another band to it. It it'll get bigger with time. It'll get longer when they need to make more names. Oh my gosh! And. Um, so I think that's kind of a cool little tradition. Wait, wait. So the trophy, the trophy travels to team, team to team. Yeah, yeah. You don't keep the trophy. Well, how do you show tell show everyone that you won? You show it around for a year. Oh, well, there must be like they probably have banners they, and things that they. Oh, they they probably get to keep a little plaque that says you know most valuable team or something like that or <laughs> most improved, you know best bench player. Oh boy. But but the, they put but the, the thing up like in the Hall of Fame or anything. Like, uh, is it is it on exhibit ever? I think it's on exhibit with whichever host team has it for that year. Oh wow! So it goes like city halls, right? museums, and you know whatever different kinds of you know public public venues. But that but when when so many teams are now you know on one of those those rings, yeah, they I guess silversmith it or whatever, and they oh, add a ring to it. And so over time, the the trophy will go from being, you know, say three feet tall, and eventually it'll be six feet tall. And they'll go, you know what? We can't call it the Stanley Cup anymore. It's the Stanley Log. Oh my gosh! Uh, the Stanley <laughs> Cannon. So, yeah, the Stanley Cannon. <laughs> my goodness, that's ridiculous. Stanley Nuclear Bomb. Yeah, it's a Stanley Empire State Building. Yeah, so, what is going to happen right. when it gets too big, man? Yeah. I, so I, there was there. Sure, I guess that's a, a tradition in hockey. There was, hockey. There's a there's another Stan not a not Stanley. There's another cup trophy like that in hockey, and it was called something like the the something log trophy. Oh my gosh! Because it just got so long. Yeah. So I I understand. I think I know what's going to happen when it can no longer be picked up by the winning team. The it, hockey is over forever. Ooh. <laughs> the NHL I is Cody, done. I think Cody's right. <laughs> okay, so so you know what that's going to do? They're going to have to drop all of the rules and regulations in the NHL for performance-enhancing drugs, and then you're going to have these mammoth. <laughs> oh yeah, so they players. can so they can pick up the trophy. So they can pick up the trophy. Yeah, I mean they're going to be seven foot five, weigh four hundred pounds. Um, they're going to have to make the ice thicker so it doesn't crack when they skate. Oh man. <laughs> Awesome. I think by that also, time they're thinking that hockey will be drained out and future generations won't be into it anymore. And uh, but isn't that where we okay, are now? Yeah, it's brand of sport. I I, I kind of thought so, but the trophy's not big enough yet. So. Oh, <laughs> well, now the other thing is we got to deal with the issues of, of uh, global climate change and and whether and whether or not a sport that relies on ice. There won't be any ice anymore. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Or or the ice. Oh, will that's be in just all place. a myth, Greg. You know, here here's the chan- Here's the deal. Ice will be in the wrong place. Brazil will be the next <laughs> hockey, uh, you know, center of the world. Yep. And Canada, they'll be playing beach volleyball. Beach yeah, volleyball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it's, that's... That'll be the day. It, oh, man. 
it, it, that'll be the day that finally somebody goes, you know what? Those uh, all those accords and international treaties that we ignored on carbon emissions, we got rid of hockey. All right, we killed hockey. We did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We did it. <laughs> Let's get back That's together in Tokyo and hammer off. this thing out now. That's right. <laughs> That's what's behind all the climate change deniers. They're closet hockey haters. They're closet <laughs> hockey haters. That's right. Oh, well, I get it now. It's a, it's a complete farce. Everything you do is a farce. great opportunity to not only be a human being, a good human being, but also have this great witness of what it means to be a Christian, and I just didn't feel like doing it. So we had we had a strong wind blow through here maybe about a month ago or something like that, and my neighbor's fence blew over. Now, it's not my fence. I didn't build it. I didn't pay for it. It's his fence, you know, but it blew over into his yard, didn't even blow into my yard, so it's like, okay, it's his deal, his problem. But I thought, no, that's not right, because one, my dog, whenever it ran in the backyard, would run into his backyard, so I thought, oh, no, that's that's inconveniencing me. I should help him out with something. You know, so really, how these self-centered thoughts in my head, it's like, okay, I need to get that fence back up. And so one day, I'm, I'm standing in my kitchen and looking out the back door, and I see him out there with a post hole digger kind of thing, digging in where he's going to put in a new post. And all I needed to do was go over and say, hey, can I help you? But, you know, I think at the time I didn't feel like it. And I thought, what a, you know, because there's that, there's that saying about good fences make good neighbors. And I just, I just, I just had an opportunity to go over there and, and be a nice neighbor. And I was just, it, too darn lazy to do it. I I was a Frito sucking lobster. Oh wow! Don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah. You are not. A, yeah, you don't need to pull out the the so hard I, I, no, no, But I've been I've been I've been thinking about that for the last you know five weeks or whatever long it's been. It's like that bugs me. 
So, Craig, let me ask you this. How have you made it right? Um, I haven't knocked down the new fence. <laughs> that's, pro- that's something. That's step okay. one. Don't knock down the fence. What's, okay. And what's really difficult is that this neighbor, it's like one of those people who does the garage door opener and you never see them come or go. Oh, so this was a golden yeah, opportunity. This, this, is, this is one of those ghost neighbors. I'm pretty sure they live there, but it, it, you can't say for sure. Mm. Well, Craig... I wish I could absolve you of this guilt, but that's pretty awful, man. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just suck, Craig. That's all it is. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, we all, you know, like uh, if I were as a pastor, I would say to someone, you know, you're that's an opportunity you missed. It's good you recognize it, but now hopefully. This has given you the eyes to see new opportunities. So maybe in the future you'll feel more motivated not to be lazy, to be a lazy Frito sucking lobster. So, so exactly. I need to. Rem- I was going to say that it's nice. I have to admit that it's nice for me to hear that you have that sense of awareness. You know that. Uh, that I mean, I agree with everything Cody said, and I would also add that the fact that you're that conscientious about it of being a good neighbor and being a good steward i think is uh i think that's a great quality so in other words since i have that nature in myself and i acted against it i'm even worse (laughs) (laughs) why do you gotta be so negative (laughs) think about how many people wouldn't they might even feel the way you do but they wouldn't give a damn about it five minutes later i mean well that's I know true. you're. I know you're not looking for affirmation. I know you're not looking for affirmation here, but that's kind of my initial thoughts on it. There's, obviously, there's things that you could do differently in the future, but it's nice enough, nicer than 99% of the people. I think I maybe that you have that sense of awareness and you want to do something about it. Well, I'll I'll, I'll take that affirmation and I'll take the uh, recommendation that uh, next time it happens, I'll remember how stupid or guilty I feel and. And change my, my response. Now, now, Craig, I want you to, for penance, I want you to put a rock in your shoe, and I want you to walk around on it for one week. Hey, how about how about if I just run in some track spikes and bruise my toenails? Perfect. All right. Perfect. All right. This is where the weird. This is where the weird loony religious stuff comes in. We try to be common sense about stuff, but we also hold the weird religious practices like that. Well, That's right. and, and I think there needs to be some more religious uh, looniness using track spikes um, and other oh, track field gear. I mean, yeah, I've, I've got a discus here at the house I don't know what to do with, and it could be a great tool for penance. Okay, so Cameron, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You were in the military, correct? 
I was. I was in the Army from 2003 to 2011. Um, I was Army Reserve most of the time and uh, got a degree in finance from Baylor University down in Texas. And so I, I was there during the bad times of the Baylor um, Bears when they weren't a very good football team. And uh, we, we had this great quarterback, Robert Griffin III, um, came my junior year. And so I, I experienced a year or two of him there. But anyway, came out of uh, Baylor with a degree in finance, uh, began working in the banking uh, community, banking environment right after the crash. And I saw a lot of the abuse that had happened uh, within the industry and how we were trying to fix that, but it wasn't happening very quickly. And some of those old habits were still there. And so that created in me a desire to uh, maybe help people out in a little bit of a better or more personal uh, way and really address a need, um, which is, again, food. So my military background definitely has prepared me for what I do now, but I, I got out of the Army in 2011. Okay. And then after 2011, uh, how did you end up in Idaho? <laughs> Great question. Um, so we we both graduated Baylor. My wife and I graduated from Baylor around the same time. And it was kind of a cool time because we got to choose where we wanted to go. Uh, we could move anywhere. And so we had visited up here a few times, and uh, this is uh, from the culture, of the, the market that they have down downtown every Saturday where they close downtown Boise just for a market, um, to uh, the skiing, to the, you know, just the people and the environment and the, the great um, culture that we have here. Um, this is definitely a place where we wanted to live and, and potentially raise a family. Awesome. And you, do you have any kids? We don't have kids. No, okay. I I kind of joke and I say the deli's my kid. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Uh, we we it, it takes up lots of uh, lots of time and you know care and love and devotion um, to to that. And so uh, my wife is a PhD student at Boise State. Okay. And uh, so it's just never been the right time for us to have kids. Okay. How did you? come to the deli in the first place? I mean, you didn't move to Idaho thinking, I'm going to open up a deli, did you? No, I didn't. No, I'm, I came to Idaho in the banking community. And so I said, this is going to be, and I had these these dreams of, um, you know, being a, a, a 20 to, you know, 20 year career in banking or something. And, um, and, and just doing that. And again, I, 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 I had this sense about a couple, three, four years in, that maybe I just wasn't doing the best thing for the world around me. Wasn't doing the most loving thing maybe for the world around me. And so um, that got me thinking about what a more loving thing is that I could do with my background in business, mm -hmm. my background in finance and entrepreneurship. I took a, a number of entrepreneurship courses there at Baylor and um, understood the finance world um, from a small business perspective. And so that caused me to want to go into a small business industry that really addressed the need, which is how food um, kind of came about. Okay. And why food, though? With your background of finance and business, yeah. was, was yeah. cooking a hobby? Did you have some experience in the Army cooking or anything like that? No, it, it, was, it wasn't a hobby. It was just the, the thing that all of us on a daily basis have to have in order to survive. Hmm. It is literally, it is the most useful 
and loving thing that I could have done hmm. is address some sort of food uh, insecurity or, or address a food need within our community. Hmm. And so that's what I did. And you found a deli, was it for sale? It was, it was called Potbelly Deli originally, correct? It was, yeah, 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 it was. I, believe it or not, and I know this is probably not the best way to do things, but I found it on Craigslist. <laughs> I just, I looked at it, I found it online, and, and you know, the owner was, uh, they, they had, they had, uh, they had tried for, for a little while to kind of make it work, and the owner and his wife were moving down to California, I think it was, and so they were selling it, and I took a look at the financials, and it was a kind of a break-even type type thing, and so um, I bought it, and when 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 I got a hold of it, the culture and the environment within the deli itself and the, its place in the community wasn't very good, and so I spent about a year um, fixing that and kind of repairing that and putting new people into place and then connecting with the community, even as a for-profit business, hmm. before we became uh, the concept that we have today. Okay. And you bought the deli in 2013? Uh, September 26th of 2013. Okay. And you had it for about a year before you changed the name and changed the whole business plan. Well, it was it was a little bit... It was actually more than a year before we changed the, the business model itself. Okay. Um, it was about a year until the time that I really started thinking about going in this direction. And so September 2014, just right at a year, I, I noticed that we had a couple of thousand dollars of food in our refrigerator, and we were feeding a lot of people. Um, but there were a lot of people who we weren't feeding as well. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people who we were saying to parenthetically, um, we'll feed you nice, good, healthy food that you're going to really benefit from as soon as you have six or eight dollars to pay mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. But until you do, go ahead and go down to the fast food, you know, the junk food, right. the eating candy bars. You know, we've all been there. And so we're just going to wait until you build yourself up and mm -hmm. then you can come in and eat with us versus the other way around in which now we get to say, hey, we're going to we're going to build you up. We're going to help build you up. Mm. And I, and I think when you think of things in terms of building people and not just building sandwiches in our case, right. um, but really feeding people where they are, uh, you get to feed um, the well-off and you get to feed the not-so-well-off in the same location at the same time. And again, that was the most loving thing we could do. Okay. And when you made the decision uh, to switch to nonprofit and, and pay you know, as you're able... Um, how, how did that conversation go with your employees? Uh, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, <laughs> I didn't really tell too many people about it mm. prior to making the, the move. <laughs> I literally, I got up on the counter one morning. It was in, uh, it was May 5th of 2015. I had this idea in my mind since September and had been kind of developing it and figuring out all the implications. And I reached out to some people in the city of Meridian, and I floated the idea by them. But I didn't really say a lot to the staff that we had at the time. Um, uh, one morning, May 5th, 2015, I got up on the counters, and, and I took a, a wet washcloth, mm -hmm. and I, I erased the prices from, mm -hmm. from our menu. We have a chalkboard menu. Mm -hmm. And so I erased the prices from our menu, 
And I went to him. It was in the morning before we opened up. I went to him and I told him the direction that we were going to go. And um, I put it in terms of uh, co-creation. I like the idea of co-creation. Yeah. Uh, that I'm not going to necessarily make decisions by myself anymore, but I want us to make decisions together to build the best place possible to be the most beneficial um, organization that it can be within our city, within our community. Yeah. How how did the rest of the team respond to that? Are are they still they completely on board, or have you lost anyone Absolutely. over the time? No, I mean, um, we we don't have the same staff now that we did in May of 2015, simply because people have moved on and done other things. We had some people that went to school in August and that sort of thing. But um, the the team that we had, nobody reacted adversely to it. There was some head scratching. There was some some surprise. But ultimately, um, we have some really, really solid people that work with us. And um, they've been super graceful just to um, grow and to expand in what their understanding is that are of their their understanding of a restaurant, um, what that can be. Mm-hmm. And so, no, we didn't have any adverse reaction to it. Okay. Are there other nonprofit uh, restaurants or cafes or delis out there that you've kind of looked to or uh, sought some counsel from or advice? Yeah. So there's – and I didn't know that they existed at the time. That's how close to the vest I, I kind of kept things. I, I knew secretly that it was the right thing to do for us. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really um, reach out a lot prior to making the transition, um, except for people in the city of Meridian. So I did find out afterwards there's an organization called One World Everybody Eats, mm-hmm. um, which has a number of community cafes. Yeah. Yep. And they operate on what they call a pay-what-you-want basis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, different people do it different ways. Some people have a full menu. Some people have partial menus. Some people just have one day a week or something like that. And so we don't say a lot of words like pay or price or purchase. And so we didn't adopt a pay what you want Mm -hmm. uh, model right away, but we do a lot of um, giving and donating and that kind of language instead. But it's certainly something where I've reached out to them and uh, figured out some ideas from their perspective too. Sure. Have you noticed with your customers or people who come in, are there any customers who have a um because i can imagine me i'd have a little bit of anxiety like okay am i going to pay the right amount if i want to give money Mm. i don't want to hurt this is a cool thing they're doing (laughs) but i don't want to hurt them you know by not giving the right amount you have have you countered that well the the cool thing is there's not a right amount well there's not a wrong amount right (laughs) right the cool thing is the cool thing is there's not a wrong amount to donate um so we don't try to set or control anything that people give. And um, as far as whether whether there's been questions about kind of what should I give, you know, as a population, we assign an ought. Right. And we say, we say we should give this a much, or we should pay this much or whatever. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to assign our morality to kind of, um, what people give in exchange for food at Bread of Life Deli. And so what we say is what, when we're really, really pressed, we're still not going to give for legal reasons, for tax purposes, we're still not going to give a set amount. Mm-hmm. But we will say things like, you know, most of the time when people donate, they donate what they would pay somewhere else. Sure, sure. 
And so if, if you can imagine yourself going into another deli, um, the prices that you would pay there, most of the time people are comfortable donating that here, but we simply, we're not going to compel, we're not going to make somebody, you know, do that and try to limit or control that. Mm. Okay, so now you've been doing this for a little over a year or right out of year. Yeah, May 5th, 2015. That was it. So okay. maybe a year and a month. How, just more than just more than that. How has business gone? Have you been able to make it work? Is it sustainable? Well, it, it's still in its infancy stage for sure. Um, we definitely have months where we don't break even. Uh, the donations um, which come in aren't enough to cover the cost of just operating um, the deli itself. Mm-hmm. When we made our lease, um, when we wrote our lease and locked that in, uh, we we didn't have this concept in mind yet. And so um, it was a little bit different having to uh, manage our fixed costs now uh, just with the donations that do come in. Mm-hmm. But I've got to say, uh, we, we do have a very good board of directors in place. And so... Um, we've been able to streamline some of the uh, the labor costs and that kind of thing um, to be able to make, and we do a lot of volunteer engagement, and that's another big thing mm-hmm. that we can talk about. But, um, you know, we, we've been able to um, forego some of the traditional costs that a restaurant has okay. because of our model as well. So most months we either break even, maybe profit just a little bit, which, again, goes back into the community or um, if it doesn't break even, it comes out of uh, a home equity uh, line of credit that I have on my house. Okay. And you mentioned uh, volunteers um, a little bit earlier. Where where do your volunteers come from? Where how, Where's the volunteer pool? Yeah, the volunteer pool is all around us in the community. Again, I'm really big into the idea of co-creation. Mm-hmm. And so when someone comes to us and says, I want to volunteer, we simply say, okay. And we ask which days and times um, work best for them, that sort of thing. But we don't try to control who volunteers and when they volunteer and that kind of thing. We, we have um, volunteers that have just, they live at home and they don't do a lot during the day and they're tired of cleaning their own house, so they volunteer. It's not a need-based thing. Okay. We have volunteers who come in and they live in their van and they want to give back they don't feel like they want they don't want to feel like they're just being given stuff they want to Mm -hmm. earn it and so they volunteer we have volunteers that will come through organizations like Mm justserve.org and connect with us that way and they'll volunteer so again we don't ask a lot of questions about our volunteers Um, we understand that when someone wants to volunteer they want to love us and so we allow them to but there are certain things that a volunteer simply can't do there right. at the deli. And so we'll allow them to play to their strengths uh, within certain parameters and help out in the best way they can. Very nice. Uh, you said that you did talk with the Meridian community a little bit. And I wonder, has there been any, I don't know if you'd want to call them competitors, but other restaurants or other delis that have gone, man, this ain't cool. You're undercutting us on our prices, basically. And uh, mm. we don't like it. Has there any been, been any of that? You know, I expected that. Um, but what I did is I almost undercut that. <laughs> I said early on, I went to our competitors and I said, this is what we're thinking about doing. Okay, so I went to Hugo's Deli here in town. Richard right. Hugo and I are very good friends. Okay, um, I, um, George's is 
another place, Fat Guy's Deli, um, talked to the chef there, and I said, hey, here's our concept. Here's who, what we are now. We're a successful, profitable competitor of yours, and and here is a direction that I think we want to go. Can I get your help in thinking about ways to do this the most effectively? Hmm. And they said yes. And so part of our, our board of advisors is actually other deli owners here in oh, town. Wow. wow! Not our board of directors, but our board of advisors. And right. so when we could get buy-in from them, that they, while they're operating their businesses successfully, could help us operate this organization from an advisory standpoint, um, that that gave them a little bit of a, a buy-in to the future of this organization mm-hmm. and how we can be successful and build a healthy community. Now, a few times throughout the interview here, you've mentioned that you've used the word co-create, and you've also talked mm-hmm. about building up your customers. So I sense and I hear some uh, theological underpinnings there, and I wonder if you, <laughs> I wonder if you want to talk to me and describe to me a little bit what your what the theology is behind this. Like, what made you think about this in the first place? Yeah, so I can't speak to um, the way that theology should be or the way that businesses should be run from a theological standpoint. I can't say anything about that. Mm-hmm. All I can say is what I felt like I should um, do using my understanding of God to help the world uh, around me. Mm-hmm. And so this notion um, that what we were doing when we fed people every day before we made this transition was we were really loving them. Mm-hmm. And and the idea is that I, I want to do the most loving thing in every given moment uh, that I can with the resources that I have. Mm-hmm. And so that that means that when we feed people, again, we equate feeding people to loving them. Right. And so if you think love, when you think about love, I think from – my understanding of God, God's love is pretty uncontrolling right. in its nature. God doesn't force us into one direction or another or whatever. He'll, he'll influence us. God will influence us, but not really try to control that. And so when I put what I do in terms of loving people, mm-hmm. I understand that I can't coerce money from people and give them food in exchange for it. I I can't only feed people if they do this. I simply have to feed people, and and that's it. I don't see Jesus feeding 4,800 people because 200 of them were gay or couldn't afford it or had tattoos or I didn't agree with their theology or I didn't agree with their background or their culture or whatever. He fed 5,000. Yeah. And and when I see Jesus feeding 5,000 people, regardless of who they were and their background, where they came from, I have to do the same thing in order to be the most Christ-like that I could be. Right. So I think the I think God's love is I think God loves us regardless if we have anything to give. Mm. And so when I feed people to the best of my ability. I have to feed people regardless if they have anything to give or not. And so that is, as a Christian, that is how I emulate uh, what I see in in Christ's revelation of God uh, the best. Mm. That's beautiful. Love it. And I definitely hear some, uh, we were just commenting, definitely hear some Tom Ord influence in there. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Tom and I are, are good friends. Um, I was doing this before I met Tom, um, but certainly uh, we've, we've put our heads together a little bit, and 
figured out, um, you know, you, you can you can start with an understanding of God and then view the world around you with that understanding, or you can start with the world around you and say, how can I best understand God mm. given what I see? Right. And so when I, I see the world around us, uh, the uh, food insecurity, the lack of healthy food consciousness around us, and, and I say, how, how can I, again, best um, love people? And I feel like that is something that I'm doing to worship God, you know, in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, the way that we're doing things is just kind of a natural result of that. Very cool. Has anyone walked in and just said, hey, I'm just here just to give a donation. Don't feed me here. Boom. Here's some money. (laughs) A few times. Yes. Yeah. You know, a few times uh, people have come and said, hey, I've I've heard about you guys. I love what you're doing. I don't have time to eat, but (laughs) I wanted to give, you know, $20 or something. And, you know, the way that we have it set up and here's something else. We don't have a cash register at Bread of Life Deli. Oh, wow. There's no cash register there. Okay. So across mm-hmm. the room from us is uh, what we call a donation station. Now, people can donate to us other ways as well, mm-hmm. but it provides a convenient place where there's a, a card swiper and people can type in their own donation if they want to, and they can swipe their card at the bottom and find their name with their finger and hit the blue button and it, and it takes. Or there's a cash box right next to it. And so mm. they can put in the money that they want to donate. And then we have change up at the front if they want change. Mm. And um, so theoretically, you know, someone could come up and ask us for change and not have put any money in the box. <laughs> and, and we're giving them change. We oh, wow. realize that. So we operate from a basis of trust with yep. the community yep. and the understanding that if we do good for enough people, you know, I think there's just um, a breath of fresh air that happens when people understand who we are and the way that we do things. They want to jump on board mm-hmm. and they want to give back to us. And so that's not the reason we started in this direction in the first place, but it's certainly been a result. Okay. You mentioned that you operate on a, a sense of trust there. You know, somebody could come in and and ask for change. They didn't give any money. How many of your former friends from the financial world shake their head at you and go, man, you're crazy? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know that, but I do know that Baylor University reached back out to me and, and said, hey, we want to interview you. Um, and it showed up in, in the Baylor Lariat and they, they, uh, their newspaper, and, and they got some quotes from the Center for Entrepreneurship there at Baylor um, from some professors there in support and stuff. So you know, I'm really not sure how many people kind of shake their head and say that'll never work. I don't um, I don't pay much attention to it. I really don't because, again, at the end of the day, I know that we're doing the most loving thing we can for people, right. and so that's what I feel like I want to do. We always make the joke, uh, and we did when we first got into it as well, that, you know, if we go out of business, it's because we fed too many people. Very cool. So – Having noticed that then, noticing the people from the different walks of life, um, have you Mm -hmm. noticed uh, any connections being built, a new community arising Mm -hmm. up out of this, like from the food secure to the food insecure that wasn't there before? Sure. Yeah. No, definitely. And that's a good point. Um, One thing that we wanted to do is provide – one thing that we wanted to do is to be a conduit of connection Mm -hmm. for our community. 
And we, we wanted to be the commonality that everybody sort of came back to and said, um, yes, we, we can connect in this one place at this one table over a common need, and that's to eat. Because mm-hmm. everybody gets hungry. I don't care if you make, you know, $10 a day or a million dollars a day. You get hungry about three times a day. All right. And so we wanted to take care of lunch. And so when people can come in to coexist together, you might have someone in a three-piece suit, you know, an, an attorney type, or we have politicians stop in, we have doctors stop in, bring their clients, we have real estate agents there. And then we have some very, um, you know, we have some folks who live in their van who take showers at the gym. They don't work out at the gym. They take showers there because that's the only shower that they have access to. And um, and they can eat the same food in the same place at the same time. It's cool um, what kind of conversations come out of that. Um, not every day, not every time, but certainly over time, uh, people get to know each other. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a final series of questions, and these are the questions we ask every guest that we have on. And no, that no, no problem. Okay, that is, what are you? Uh, what are you drinking? What are you okay. reading? What are you watching, yeah. and what are you listening okay. to? Okay. Well, I just drank coffee. <laughs> um, what am I reading? I'm reading uh, The God Who Risks by mm. um, John Sanders. Yep. Uh, what am I watching? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm watching a... Um, I'm watching Monica Coleman. Um, she's a professor uh, yes, yeah. of theology at, at Claremont University. So um, she, she's a great teacher down there. So I just watched a, a, a thing by Monica Coleman. And what's my last one? Uh, what are you listening to, like music or podcast? Or... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, um, I do listen to podcasts. I, I listen to Homebrew Christianity and Trip Fuller. I listen to uh, a few other um, podcasts. What do I listen to on the radio? I just listen to the radio, you know, nor- normally when I'm, um, I do like audio books, but I don't have any audio books right now. So I just listen to the normal radio when I'm driving around and that kind of thing. Awesome. Now, and if I show up at your deli and you uh-huh. had to recommend one thing off the menu for me to eat, what would it be? What's the signature bread of life deli dish? Yeah, the turkey cotto. Okay, it's, it's uh, yeah, the turkey cotto, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, um, our sliced turkey, and we do have a we have a slicer there. We don't pre-slice, you know, and have it shipped in and stuff like that. We slice everything right there at the belly. So we the sliced turkey, um, um, avocado from the shell. So again, we don't pre-mix anything in a paste type thing. We just take the avocado right out of the shell right there and put it on the sandwich. So the turkey, avocado from the shell, alfalfa sprouts, um, tomatoes and onions with a light base of mayo on a French roll. Perfect. And uh, so we're one of the only three places in the valley, the whole Treasure Valley, to offer sprouts with our sandwiches. Yeah. And uh, sprouts provide a nice, healthy alternative to like a, a chopped iceberg lettuce yeah. that just doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. We also offer um, a green leaf lettuce as opposed to the chopped iceberg. But sprouts are something that people come to our deli for actually, yeah, because I they can't them. find it in stores. Right, they exactly. can't find them anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So we have to we have to be careful with them. You know, we treat them in a certain way, but um, certainly they're very beneficial to, to everyone who eats them. 
Awesome. Okay, so tell our listeners how they can find you on the web and in person and Mm -hmm. um, how they can help out if they want to send a donation. Mm. Yeah, so um, in person, it's just going to be the actual physical address is 1535 West Franklin in Meridian, Idaho, 83642. And the way you find it is you um, you go along Franklin. If you're coming down Meridian Road, you make a left on Franklin. And then we're going to be at the intersection of Franklin and Linder. Nice. Um, if you come down 10 Mile Road, you make a right on Franklin. And again, it's the intersection of Franklin and Linder. Um, the number there at the deli is 208-887-1205. And if you have any questions for me, I always give out my cell phone number. I don't care about doing that. So my cell okay. phone number is 208-697-0595. Now, as far as sending donations, we're definitely appreciative of that. I, I'm not paid, by the way. I'm not paid as an administrator of the mm-hmm. organization. Right. I've, I've chosen to take two years and say, hey, I'm going to forego a salary for two years. So everything oh, that wow. we do take in terms of donations are used to feed people. Mm. And so um, when you do donate, go, you can send a check to the deli itself or you can get a hold of me on my cell phone number and we can figure out some other way to do that. But definitely we appreciate oh. uh, any donations that come in. It helps things out a lot. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cameron. I really appreciate what you're doing there and your willingness to be interviewed by us. You you bet. And if I could say something else really quickly. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I like the idea um, that God creates um, novelty in our lives and works with us to create um, new ways of thinking about the world around us. And we, in turn, I think, um, create novelty uh, with God. And allow God to act in different ways than God might have otherwise as it relates to our world. And so um, when I look at the novel ways of thinking about the food industry and the restaurant industry that we're a part of and the idea that we can feed everybody who comes in the door really healthy, high-quality food and operate by donation only, we think everyone should have access to healthy food. Yeah. We we don't make a claim that they should eat it or shouldn't eat it. That's up to them. But we think they should have access to it. Mm. And so when I allow God to work with me to co-create um, some novel idea within the restaurant industry here in Meridian, Idaho, <laughs> I, I think we see the benefit of that that goes way beyond our four walls there at the deli. It goes into our community. It has been talked about statewide. It's been talked about nationally on peoplemagazine.com online. Um, And and it's really impacting um, the world in ways that I never thought possible. And it's just because I said yes. It's just because I opened up and said, I am not going to be driven by fear God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, nope. but a power and of love and of a sound mind. And I think that perfect love casts out fear. And so when I allow myself to be driven from a place of love, as opposed to being driven from a place of fear, the things that I find myself doing are maximally beneficial to the world around me. Mm. And I've got to say, they're maximally fulfilling to myself as well. Wow. And so I really enjoy um, doing the things that we do and the ways that we do them. And I'm super excited about um, the future and where we're going to go from here. Ah, That's beautiful. Thanks, man.
Let me take just a second here to thank you, our listeners, for checking out the podcast and for your words of encouragement and support. I know what you're probably thinking about right now. You're thinking, this podcast is all right, not bad, not bad. And maybe you're also thinking, I wonder how this podcast could possibly get any better. Well, first of all, thank you for thinking that. And secondly, oh, it can. You see, we're just learning. We're just getting started. And one thing that we've learned so far is that we need to upgrade our tech, our sound equipment, and pretty much everything else. We're also learning putting this show together takes a little bit of scratch, if you know what I mean. A few sticks of cheddar. Money. I'm, I'm talking about money. And this is where you come in. If this podcast is something that you enjoy, something you'd like to see continue, something you'd like to see get better and better, would you please consider donating a little something-something? If you're interested, you can find us at www.themissionplace.org slash allthatsholyblue-collar. Look for the donate button at the bottom of the page. We happen to fall under the auspices of The Mission Place, which is a 501c3 organization that is like a network of guides and teachers for developing gifts for service, a partner for those who are called to service within the church, and basically a resource for those who love the church. Through partnerships with multiple organizations, institutions, and churches, The Mission Place brings together gifted individuals to work together for specific projects. Now, all of your donations to help the podcast are tax-deductible for this reason, and any extra we receive that does not go directly to the show will be given to The Mission Place and its good cause. There will be further avenues to help us with the podcast coming in the future, like maybe a Patreon page, for example. But in the meantime, we want to thank you again for listening and considering donating to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. All right, so guys, uh, the other day, well, it was actually last week, I was having a delicious prime perfect steak and it was juicy it was cooked just right uh, i know because i cooked it myself and uh <laughs> anyway whenever i eat a steak this is actually going to be more of a history a personal history than anything history of steak eating <laughs> my history of steak eating but whenever i think of eating a steak now or when i'm eating a steak now i remember that i at first hated steak absolutely hated steak and the Ah. reason is because when i was a kid my dad he uh my mom did most almost all of the cooking like 99 percent of the cooking but when it came to steaks my dad was in charge and he would grill the steaks and he would cook the steak the way he liked having steak which for him was the most well done it could get. Oh, all right. Like, <laughs> like shoe, oh. shoe leather, tough, dry. Ugh. Wow. Now, and, and is that and is that the that's kind of rare. The only, only thing to put on it is ketchup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly, Craig. You know, I I could be wrong, but that seems like the minority of steak owners like their steaks that way. Well, at least so. no, or or I would say the minority of male steak owners. Right. Yes. Exactly. So he ser- so he would serve us these steaks, and I, when I was eating it um, as a kid, 
I didn't know steak came any other way. I just assumed all steak was this way. And so he would serve the steak. And we had the type of deal where, you know, you had to eat. You couldn't leave the table until you at least ate a good you know portion of it. And I would try to choke that thing down. And literally it would like it would like gag me. And so I started to do this thing where I would uh, chew up the steak and then I would hide it. You know, I'd like hide it in a napkin or something like that. And uh, I knew I couldn't throw. I thought I'd get in trouble if I threw it away. So what I would do is I would take the steak from my napkin back to my room and I would hide it behind my dresser. Uh. <laughs> and uh, one day my mom like was in my room and she like smelled the smell and she pulled back my dresser and was like, Oh my gosh, there's chewed up steak back here. What in the world is this from? So I had to confess and tell, I can't oh. eat the steak. It, it chokes me. I can't get it down. It's gross. It's nasty. So anyway, growing up, I hated how, how, steak. Well, how, how far were you through high school at this point? <laughs> but, no, that, that was when I was pretty young still. At that oh, point. okay. Gotcha. And so basically we, we kind of stopped eating steak because of that. Um, <laughs> and so we rarely ever had it. Well, when okay, I went now, away, when, when, when yeah. you say we, do you have siblings who managed yes. to choke it down? So I had an older sister, okay. and no, she was the exact same as me. She could, we couldn't stand it. It was just awful. And again, <laughs> again, we'd never had any other kind of steak. So like I live where I live, where I grew up um, was a town called Howe, and it's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing. So you know, eating out was not. It was a very rare thing, you know, to go anywhere and to eat anything because there just weren't places to do that. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, steak to me was just this dry, gross, nasty thing. Well, one day when I was in college and, and because of that, so that was my mindset always towards steak was no steak is awful. So even when I got older and was in high school and like, say, I went on a, a road trip or something with uh, the sports team and people were getting steak, I would just be like, oh, my gosh, no, how can you eat that stuff? And I would stay away from it. <laughs> And so I go to college, and they would have this night in our cafeteria that was like a steak night. And it was like a special thing. And I was like, why is everyone making this such a special thing and, and whatever? It's awful. Steak is terrible. <laughs> and so they would give an option that night. They'd have steak, and then they would also have chicken. And I'd always, did, I'd always do chicken because I just hated steak. So you were going through the oh, world yeah. as if you knew you were the only enlightened individual and everybody else were like lemons. <laughs> something. I was like, how can people think this? It's so gross. Well, so one night I was like, well, okay, if everyone likes it so much, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'll give it a try this one particular steak night. So we go through and they put on my plate of steak. I go to the table, I sit down and I eat it. And it was like, seriously, a revelation. Like, steak can be good and it can be cooked differently and and that's when i started to learn that there were options to steak you didn't have to have it super bone dry you know black and leather like and uh so that's when i learned that you can actually have your steak a different way and it can be good so ever since then of course now i love steak but i wanted to bring the story up because it made me think my dad when i told him this story because I, you know, I never, I didn't want to hurt his feelings or anything, so he never really knew <laughs> what, I, what I thought about his steaks. But I went home and I told him, Dad, did you know that they can make steak different? 
And he was like, well, yeah, of course. Why didn't you ever say anything? I was like, I didn't know I even had the option, you know, to have a different way. So anyway, that's, that's my good. That's my steak story. That's a good steak story. Yeah. Well done. Well done. That is. <laughs> well done. No, nope. exactly. Do, do you know how many times you said rare, though, as you were telling the story? It was pretty rare that I said it. It, it was a rare story, it, yeah. It's a rare story, yeah. <laughs> Just a quick word about our three songs that we've chosen for this particular episode of All That's Holy. We have three songs from three different artists. Casual Party by Band of Horses from their latest album, Why Are You Okay? We have A Beautiful World by Mud Crutch off of Mud Crutch 2. And Burn the Witch from Radiohead off of their album, Moonshaped Pool. All three of these albums were released recently within the last few months, and all of them are significant for this reason that they are anticipated albums each of these artists took a significant break in between recording their album just before this one radiohead five years ago was their last album band of horses four years ago and mud crutch eight years ago much like we took a significant break in between episode number one and episode number two ironic coincidence maybe Anyway, I highly suggest you check out all three of these songs and definitely consider buying their albums. All of them have some unique work on their songs, particularly the Radiohead song, Radiohead song, just a haunting track. Beautiful work on that with the strings, which are uh, just a very haunting, almost like horror movie-like. And Band of Horses is um, using uh, Rick Rubin as their executive producer for the first time and also Jason Lytle. And so, so there's some heavy synth. Jason Lytle is known for his heavy synth. So you'll pick up on that on their new album. And Mud Crutch is basically Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's who Mud Crutch is, pretty much. Um, in fact, Mud Crutch was a forerunner to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, they formed as a band in 1970, were signed to a record deal in 1975, and never released a record 
they transitioned into Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and never released an album as Mudcrutch until 2008, 38 years after they formed, they dropped their debut album. And then this follow-up this year in 2016. Anyway, check out all three of them. I think you'll enjoy. And now, for this episode's two-minute warning. The question, though he did not win the nomination, can we consider Bernie Sanders' campaign a success? All right, so if we're talking about why the Bernie Sanders, or the question is, was the Bernie Sanders campaign successful? I think this is a question that we need to be asking more of, is it looks like it's coming to an end. It looks like he's not going to get the nomination. I say yes, it absolutely has been, because you have to look at, he's brought ideas into the political mainstream that weren't there before, and he's getting people asking questions. He's getting people who are really forcing the hand of their government officials and really demanding accountability out of them, and this is becoming more and more popular, and it's only going to get more and more popular as time goes on, and so I don't, Bernie's really not much of an egotist. I don't think he cares as much about his personal reputation as he does the message he's presenting and so as a result if his campaign doesn't lead him to the presidency but it leads to more young people following through on his message in the future running for office and such then yeah i'd say it's absolutely been a successful campaign boom right on whoa one minute exactly right all right craig <laughs> you have 30 seconds to respond I am passionately ambivalent about Bernie Sanders. One is a socialist who said he's setting up a revolution. He wasn't revolutionary enough. He should have gone for straight anarchy and tried to, in fact, inflame his followers to just step out of the system rather than trying to fix a broken system. That's one side. Craig, this is serious. This is serious. Oh, yeah. I love I, – Yeah, have you ever read uh, The Rebel by uh, – by uh, whoever that philosopher was. Good book. Uh, <laughs> no, but I've heard good things. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think in some ways he could have he could have gone a little bit more aggressive on the change, not the system, but change the whole nature of democracy. All right. That's Craig's response. Here's mine. Are you ready? I, yeah. I agree with Justin. It is a successful campaign in this. Bernie Sanders has been given the opportunity to set the conversation for the Democratic Party because he's been given the uh, awesome responsibility of choosing seven people for the platform committee that's going to meet at the Democratic National Convention. And this conversation can shape the direction of the party for years and years to come. And so he will be changing the system from the inside. 